Welcome, everybody. Today is Tuesday, January 21st. Happy summer solstice, everyone. Um, today, on Tuesdays, we usually have Mr. Dwaskin. So Mr. Dwaskin will present his In the Headlines lecture series. Mr. Dwaskin, the floor is yours. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Angela. And yes, you are right. Today is the first day of summer in the Northern Hemisphere. So, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't feel all that summery, but um, that's the way the, the moon, uh, the, the sun uh, cycle works, not the moon, the sun cycle works. So it's the first day of summer. And I'm uh, usually that hot anymore. But uh, I spoke last week about uh, climate change and about uh, global warming. And uh, actually it's a good way to segue into uh, one of the big events of the news that hasn't gotten enough publicity, which is that this week there have been some enormous floods in Northeastern India. And I was reading today that 5 million people, 5 million people have lost their homes and have been displaced. So it's not some kind of little local uh, happening but, um, you know, we are so far away and news in, in, in other countries, especially non-European countries, don't make the headlines as much. And, uh, you know, if 5 million people were displaced somewhere in North America or in, uh, even, in, uh, even in South America, uh, the American public would sit up and take notice. But uh, because it's happening in India, uh, a place so far away, and Eastern India, which is even the mo more, probably the most remote part of India as a whole, um, it hasn't given, been given the attention that it deserves. I just would uh, finish off by saying that they had some huge rains, some tremendous rains, um, but that part of India is known to get a lot of rain. Uh, what's happened is, is that um, the uh, Brahmaputra River, which is one of the main rivers coming out of the Himalayas, has uh, burst its banks and uh, therefore, of course, people are displaced. Now, you know, um, part of the reason for the severe damage, and this happens all around the world also, is that you have a combination of weather changes or climate change. Um, overpopulation and overstressing of the local environment. Uh, in the case of uh, Eastern India, you have um, many people settling on land, which before was not suitable to be settled on, but population sort of growth leads to pushing people to the edges of rivers, to floodplains, um, to low-lying lands, uh, which normally wouldn't be settled. And then you have the even more uh, kind of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, negative, neg negative um, uh, occurrences of cutting down of trees upriver. Up so um, trees are becoming uh, very valuable. Uh, the, um, the area in Eastern India has uh, lots of very valuable trees. So it's, it's, it's kind of jungly in a way. And the moment you cut trees down by a riverbank, there's no roots to hold the soil together. And when water comes rushing down, it just takes away 
the um, you, you know the surrounding riverbank and pushes everything down, and that's uh, how you get uh, all the damage downstream. So uh, it's a combination uh, of um, uh, climate change, which is uh, uh, you know indirectly caused by the people who are living there and uh, local destruction, um, which is caused by the people living there. And the two together lead to this uh, sort of catastrophe. In any case, um, you know, if you're interested in this, you can follow it on the news or Google the Indian floods, but um, the uh, easternmost, large easternmost state, Assam, the Assam province is the, the one that's been affected. And um, in that area, uh, the, the, is where India gets most of its, the, the most rainy parts of the whole country are in that up country area of Assam and the neighboring small uh, states. Uh, so they're used to getting a lot of rain, but this is just a kind of a, like a deluge. In any case, um, that's just, uh, just that. I wanted to get on the subjects of today. And the subjects of today have to do with elections. And uh, there, I wanted to mention three specific uh, elections which have taken place and which will take place. And um, these elections are, of course, are indicative of the state of mind and the mood of the people. And where there is a change uh, in the state of mind of the mood of the people, there's a change in the um, uh, elected officials that are going to run the country. And we had a very significant election, two significant ones this week, uh, and uh, one upcoming, which uh, of course you all uh, have heard about. So let me start maybe with the, the, the one which is the lesser known one, which was the elections in Colombia. And I'll speak a little bit about Colombia just as a, a kind of a very brief introduction without too many uh, details. Um, uh, it's a country which I have visited twice and which has um, got uh, some unique, um, some unique uh, aspects to it. One of the most unique aspects to it is it's one of the most biodiverse countries in the world. So in other words, it has, uh, I think it's the second most biodiverse country in the world, meaning it has the most variety of animals, birds, uh, and that's because it ranges from the high Andes mountains down to the coast uh, with all kinds of levels in between. Of course, everybody knows that uh, Colombia is uh, the, um, the uh, third largest producer of coffee in the world and has been a coffee producer for uh, well over a hundred years uh, because of the unique uh, properties of being located in the um, in the uh, uh, zone uh, between the equator and uh, the um, tropics uh, of, ca of uh, cancer, and um, you know the coffee and cocoa can only grow can grow only in the zone in between the tropic of Capricorn and Cancer. In other words, areas close to the equator, but also it grows best on on higher shaded uh, areas, which uh, Colombia has plenty of. 
Um, Colombia is the third largest uh, country in, uh, in Latin America and by population. So its population is over 50 million, meaning that it's uh, 20, 20 or 25% bigger than Canada in population. Uh, like many Latin American countries, it's affected by the extreme division between the well-off and the poorer off. And I was just reading uh, part of the uh, uh, sort of uh, facts on Colombia, which is that 40% of the people live on less than $100 US a month. That's really quite shocking. I, I'm not even sure I believe that, but that's what I saw somewhere. And uh, it means that, um, you know, there are a lot of poor people, uh, a relatively small middle class and a relatively small um, upper class, which has uh, a lot of um, economic resources. Um, the country is predominantly made up of, um, of uh, mestizos, which are mixtures between the Spanish settlers and the native um, indigenous people who were there. Uh, and uh, there is a good 30 to 35% of people who are of strictly European ancestry. And another seven or 10% of people who are black uh, descendants of slaves that were brought to the Pacific coast um, by the uh, Spanish uh, uh, rulers and later by the uh, independent Colombians. Um, the church for a long time, uh, along with the landowners, ran the country after independence. Uh, Colombia became independent, uh, you know, when all the other Latin American countries did in the 1810s and 1820s. Um, at one time, Colombia was a lot larger than it is today. Uh, specifically, it uh, owned what we call today Panama. And um, the United States uh, paid off Colombia uh, to give up, uh, give independence to Panama so that the United States could then pay off Panama to build the Panama Canal in the early 1900s. So uh, before that, uh, Colombia re ranged all the way up as far as uh, um, the southern part of Central America, uh, in other words, up to the Costa Rican border. And uh, down in the Amazon, uh, Colombia also controlled territories which uh, are now part of Brazil. So um, uh, it was a country where after, you know, in the 19th century, you had a kind of establishment of, we'll call them center left and center right parties, which alternated power for over a hundred years, uh, sometimes uh, gently, sometimes not so gently. Um, but uh, things started to change really a lot um, after the 1960s. Um, and that's because of drugs. So uh, drugs became uh, popular, specifically cocaine, uh, in the 1960s and 70s in the US. And uh, drug cartels were formed to process this cocaine, to ship it, to smuggle it. Um, and to invest the profits that were received in all kinds of various ways. Uh, you heard of uh, Pablo Escobar. He was the um, uh, drug king, the head of the Medellin cartel. And uh, he ran this cartel uh, kind of uh, um, in a very violent way uh, through the 1980s, into the 1980s, from the 1970s, especially to the 80s. And um, 
they even had a submarine, which we know was smuggling cocaine, uh, you know, under the ocean all the way to the US. Uh, the difference in price between a kilo of cocaine, which cost $1,500 to process, and the selling price in the US of $50,000 a kilo, meant that, um, you know, it was a very profitable item. And, you know, uh, a lot of people got into it. And, you know, drugs beget violence and violence beget violence. And, and uh, Escobar himself was thought to have murdered uh, hundreds of people, including the police, policemen, police, uh, you know, forces, judges, journalists, uh, innocent bystanders, etc. And he is very, uh, still to this very day, he's hated in Colombia. And, uh, you know, a lot of tourists uh, have heard of uh, his house and wanted to go see it. And, uh, you know, uh, we did as well. And then we were very profoundly discouraged by the, uh, by the tourist authorities because they don't want to make uh, his, um, uh, he, they don't want to make him into a hero and they don't want to uh, have his family somehow benefit from, from all of his uh, misdeeds. Um, there was an opposition cartel called the Cali cartel based in Cali, uh, which kind of assisted in getting rid of, uh, getting rid of uh, Escobar and set up their own kind of monopoly in drug trade. Uh, but eventually they were also brought down and the whole drug trade would kind of was broken up into small, uh, smaller groups, let's call it. Um, all of this, uh, all of this uh, kind of anarchy led to a sort of a, a, we'll call it a civil war, which erupted in um, Colombia between sort of left-wing forces using the drug money and right-wing forces or paramilitary type police forces also using the drug money to supply themselves with weapons. And uh, this um, civil war, uh, again, lasted uh, for 20 or 30 years. Um, the the, the left-wing guerrillas uh, formed an organization called FARC, and uh, there were other smaller organizations as well. And they tried to take over land and kind of live a communistic style uh, lifestyle uh, while um, uh, supporting themselves uh, partly in the drug trade. And uh, anyone who didn't support them was uh, kicked out or killed. Uh, the right-wing uh, 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 militia, sometimes backed by the government, saw their jobs as trying to uh, defeat the left-wing militias. And um, uh, some parts of Colombia were completely destabilized for, as I said, maybe 30 odd years. Um, in the uh, middle 20, the 2010s, uh, talks started to happen. And um, in 2016, there was an agreement that was signed whereby the left-wing guerrillas would lay down their arms, the right-wing guerrillas would lay down their arms, the left-wing guerrillas would get some seats in the, in the guaranteed seats in the assembly, uh, land would be taken and distributed to um, to uh, peasants who were supporting the left-wing uh, guerrillas. And, um, you know, this agreement um, um, was uh, something which was quite historic. And the uh, president of Colombia at the time, 
um, uh, won a Nobel Prize uh, for, uh, his name was Santos, won a Nobel Prize for, a Peace Prize for arranging this arrangement. Of course, things didn't work out exactly the way they were supposed to. Uh, there were some guerrillas who refused to lay down their arms. Uh, land reform didn't happen as quickly as it was supposed to. Uh, but nevertheless, it did put an end to the sort of uh, widespread civil war and unrest that was happening in the country. Um, you know, at the same time, Venezuela was falling apart. You know, Cesar Chavez and Maduro uh, next door to Colombia basically took a, a reasonably off country and turned it into a uh, turned it into a communistic style dictatorship. That led to poverty, and the poverty led to the uh, exile uh, of millions of uh, Venezuelans. And Colombia did receive uh, millions of refugees and allowed them to stay and help some of them to move on to uh, third countries. And uh, millions of them are still uh, sitting in, Colum in Colombia now, uh, you know, as refugees. Um, to, so that's a kind of a very shorthanded, quick background uh, uh, report on the country. Um, it has some tremendous natural resources. Um, it's a, one of the oil, an oil producer, not on the first level, but on the second level. It has a coal uh, production also, which is quite important, uh, especially nowadays. It's the world's uh, number one country in emerald, um, you know, uh, emerald gems, not that they're such a strategic resource, but interesting as it is. And of course they are the uh, number three coffee producer in the world after Brazil and Vietnam. Um, and coffee is something whose price is going up. Coffee is something where demand is not going down. And um, the um, coffee producers in Venezuela are the closest ones who lead to, to leading a middle-class uh, lifestyle. Um, and tourism. I mean, uh, the city, especially the city of Cartagena is a kind of a world-class uh, tourism city. Anyone who hasn't been there, and I've been there twice, I have to say, it's a well worth it place to visit. Um, walled city uh, established by the Spanish as uh, one of their capitals in South America. Uh, and uh, it still retains its very uh, charming historical character uh, in the walled city up until today. So uh, tourism until COVID, of course, was one of the big money earners of the country. And um, needless to say, like the whole rest of the world, uh, Colombia was affected by COVID. Tourism stopped coming and a big source of foreign exchange uh, was lost. And, you know, ne needless to say, these things uh, take time to rebuild. Um, the uh, elections which were uh, held today, uh, well, uh, I mean, this, this month, were in a certain way similar to elections that I'll be, be speaking about, um, you know, after this. But it, it was a rejection of the, both the political parties that had run the country for years. In other words, a kind of a center-left party and a sort of center-right party. Both of those were rejected by the, by the voters. Um, Colombia has a system of uh, runoff elections where the top two candidates um, 
uh, if they don't get, you know, if the one guy doesn't get 50%, then uh, there's a runoff with the uh, top two vote getters. And in the case of Colombia, the top two vote getters, neither of them were from the traditional parties which had run the country for, for 150 years. Um, the uh, top two vote getters were a man named uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, Petro and another man named uh, Hernandez. And uh, they, uh, the first one the, is the fellow who won, uh, was a young 30s year old something, but from the far left, uh, who made a uh, kind of an alliance with um, all the anti left anti government forces. Uh, he ended up winning exactly 50% of the vote. Uh, the man on the his his uh, opponent was a um, high tech uh, millionaire, uh, non political, uh, no, not associated with previous political uh, establishment parties. And um, he won 47% of the vote. Um, so it was a very close election, but um, Mr. Uh, Preto won the election. Um, um, he had unusually uh, a black vice presidential candidate, as did Mr. Hernandez. And the black people in South America uh, as you, you probably know, you may not know, but socially and economically, we're exactly in the same position, if not worse, than the Black people living in the United States. So the poorest people, the most marginalized, the least educated, the people with the worst health outcomes, um, uh, people who are discriminated against, people who have the least amount of education, um, this was the lot of the Black people living in South America, all of whom were descendants of slaves brought there by the uh, Spanish or the Portuguese. Um, slavery was abolished in Colombia in the 1850s, but it was abolished in Brazil, which is the largest country in the country, uh, in the continent, and the country with the most Blacks. Was, uh, slavery was only abolished there in 1888. So, um, uh, uh, as I said, uh, black people had the same type of social social discrimination um, uh, and economic uh, poverty as blacks in the south. Um, perhaps you might say the only some of the only differences are that uh, interracial marriages or, or liaisons are much more accepted in South America, and therefore you've got lots of people of mixed ancestry. Uh, coming and going. Uh, the woman who became vice president in this election, she was a former maid. So it tells you uh, how the new government of Colombia is one which is um, uh, sort of out of the box on the one hand, and whose uh, candidate uh, for, for the winning candidate for president is really associated with this sort of far left wing of South American politics, uh, people like Maduro or Chavez or Castro uh, or Ortega, uh, he's kind of in that mold. But what he isn't at this point is a dictator. 
And uh, he doesn't have the uh, backing of the National Assembly. In other words, his party didn't win enough seats to win a majority. And so, um, you know, unless he does some sort of a coup in the country, he's going to be dependent on negotiating and compromising in order to get anything done in the country. What he's advocated is, of course, to um, get away from oil and coal exports, which is not, which are the big money earners in the country. Colombia, by the way, is also the largest producer of fresh flowers in South America. And all of the fresh flowers that you get that you know, are shipped into the US, things like carnations and roses, uh, a lot of them come from Colombia. And um, it's uh, also, it's been, uh, and as well as bananas and other tropical fruits. Um, uh, so, it, you know, it does have a kind of a, a varied uh, economy in that sense, um, but fragile. The drug trade is still being uh, carried on, but uh, you know there is a lot of uh, uh, a lot of um, uh, efforts to um, uh, change the uh, uh, the crop from coca to other ones, which is not easy to do. There's a lot of effort to suppress the drug trade, which again, because of its such profitability, is not easy to do. And so long as demand for cocaine is going to be uh, present in the U.S., um, you know, that's the first market. Interestingly enough, though, the demand for cocaine in the U.S. has gone down. And uh, when that happened, the uh, drug cartel uh, people decided to push their uh, product over to Europe. And so there is now a big uh, trade in smuggling cocaine from Colombia to Europe. Um, sometimes via, often via African countries who are easily bribed. And, um, you know, they are the main suppliers now of uh, cocaine to Europe, where demand is growing, whereas in the U.S. it's not growing. So, you know, that's a little bit about the, uh, about the drug trade. Um, he also wants to uh, tax the rich, tax corporations, um, lower uh, inequality, uh, you know, provide services to, um, uh, you know, things like housing and medical care to people who don't have it. But of course, none of this is free. And uh, how he's going to get the money to do this is always, uh, always a question. Um, he also wants to have closer uh, relations with those uh, uh, dictator left countries that I mentioned before. And, um, you know, this could be a sort of a harbinger of a movement to the left in South America, most notably in the next door country, Brazil, which has elections uh, coming up uh, later this year. Uh, you know, Lula da Silva, the former president, is running against the current president, Bolsonaro who has a very mixed record on COVID and on the economy. And it's not unlikely that the Silva will win the elections. And therefore, you will have a kind of a left block uh, in South America, which is getting bigger with uh, countries, uh, um, you know, like uh, Brazil, uh, Colombia, uh, of course, Venezuela, Peru, uh, just elected a leftist uh, type government. Um, and, uh, 
uh, you know, uh, it remains to be seen about Argentina and Uruguay and, uh, and Chile also, which, um, which uh, also just had elections and also elected a kind of, not leftist, but at least a kind of a center left uh, government. So that seems to be the trend uh, there in South America. So I wanted to move on now to the next election. And actually, you know, you could ask me questions about everything at the end. Maybe it's easier to do it that way, uh, which is in France, which had elections this weekend on Sunday. And uh, this was the second round of elections in that country to uh, elect a parliament or an assembly. Uh, just to explain again, because sometimes it's confusing, the French uh, political system is a combination of a sort of the American system where you directly elect a president by popular vote and a parliamentary system uh, made up of districts like we have in Canada or Great Britain where each district elects their own member and the party with the most districts uh, can uh, nominate the prime minister. So that's how it works. Um, the president has powers uh, you know, over the sort of general well-being of the country, foreign affairs, defense affairs, things like that. And his prime minister is the one who sort of looks after the day-to-day -day operation of the government. So that's the sort of setup in France. And um, the uh, presidential elections were just held, uh, as you might remember, a month ago. And Mr. Macron uh, was re-elected, which is not that common, but he was re-elected, but with a much reduced majority um, in a two-way race over um, uh, Ms. Le Pen, uh, where the previous elections, Macron had 80% and Le Pen had 20%. Uh, this time it was closer to 60% for Macron, uh, you know, in the 50s percent for Macron and then the 40s percent for uh, Le Pen. So, uh, you know, his, his opposition grew quite strongly in that election. But in the parliament, but, but also in what was surprising in the first round of the elections is that the left-wing bloc uh, fared almost enough to push to second place uh, over Ms. Le Pen. And um, uh, in the uh, parliamentary elections, the left-wing bloc did really very, very well. They were expected to do well and they did well um, because this was a block that was constructed by Mr. Melanchol, who is a kind of a, we'll call him an outcast leftist rebel. Um, and he assembled a coalition of his own party, which is the outcast leftist rebel party, we'll call it, it's a good, good name. Um, and the old socialist party of France, which has much reduced in its power. Uh, the old Communist Party of France, which is much reduced in its support, and the Green Party uh, in France, which, um, like many Green Parties, has a, a core of uh, dedicated voters interesting, interested in green uh, climate-type uh, subjects. So that was his main coalition with a couple other uh, odds and ends. And, um, you know, they stuck together this time and didn't run separately. And for that reason, they did quite well in the in the um, in the parliamentary vote. Um, the uh, Macron's party was uh, had a majority in the last assembly, uh, 
you need uh, 200 and about 290 seats to have a majority. And he had over 300 last time. But this time he only managed to get 245. And this, uh, this um, uh, leftist coalition ended up with 130. But the, the biggest sort of surprise, or I will say the biggest improvement was made by Mrs. Le Pen's party, which only had eight seats in the last parliament. And they went up to, um, they went up to 90 or 89 this time. So from eight to 89 is really a huge jump. Uh, they are less than the other opposition party. But if you add the far left opposition and the far right opposition together, in other words, you add 131 and 89, you get 220. And uh, it means that the far left and the far right can pull 220 seats out of 577. So it's really a statement saying that the French population are fed up with old time politics. And it's a kind of a mirror of what happened in Colombia, where the, um, the traditional center-right and center-left parties uh, were eliminated or defeated. This time in France, they weren't eliminated or defeated, but they were much reduced in their, um, you know, in their political support to the point where, um, you know, uh, over a third, well over a third uh, of the seats are held by these two uh, these two uh, radical extremes, we'll call them. Um, and it makes it, of course, difficult to govern for Macron without a majority. But there are other parties that did get elected. The uh, old time Republican Party got elected. Some regional parties got elected. Some independents got elected. And, uh, you know, he'll have to use his negotiating skills to, uh, to uh, come up with some sort of a government. Um, and, uh, you know, that's his job, uh, you know, not easy at a time when inflation is, is hitting France like everything else. Um, the war in the Ukraine is, is affecting the country. Uh, the decision on how much to back uh, the Ukraine and how much money to send them is a decision. Uh, the other big decisions are to... Uh, the relations with uh, Great Britain and um, you know, quarrels about the uh, agreement of, of Great Britain leaving the, uh, the, uh, the European Union, uh, the issue of migrants uh, and uh, uh, how much to allow migrants to come into France, what to do with them once they get there. Uh, many migrants want to go into England and should France be uh, stopping them? Uh, the, these are some of the um, some of the important kind of uh, issues facing the country, um, you know, as well as all the other issues facing every other Western country, which is you have an aging population. Uh, in France, actually, one of the issues is uh, to raise the uh, retirement rate from 62 to 65. So France is a very low retirement age. And after 62, at this point, you could get your full pension, part of which is paid by the state. Since uh, you know demographic trends are, are, are the same there as everywhere else, in other words, the country is getting older and older, and there's fewer young people working to support all the old people retiring, um, the budget is going to be constrained by that. And France, uh, the, Mr. Macron, 
uh, wanted to raise the retirement age to 65, which is much more like it is in other countries. And, uh, you know, the leftist opposition was not happy with that. And uh, it remains to be seen if that's one of the major reforms that he'll be able to push through. So uh, just a little uh, focus on that country. Uh, France, as you all know, is very, uh, one of the most dependent on tourism of countries in Europe. Uh, France is the, I think the second most visited country in all of Europe, if not the first most. And um, the COVID has certainly been something which uh, affected the, the tourism industry in France as well, as well as everywhere else in the world. And, you know, things are coming back now, but they're not back to where they were. So, um, uh, you know, Mr. Macron is gonna have to use all of his skills to make a government and to hold it from falling apart. Talking about governments falling apart, the third uh, subject of, the, of today, as you heard, I will continue talking about that, is that the, it was announced yesterday that the Israeli government is gonna fall apart and uh, that elections will in all likelihood be held in October. And I was looking at a list of democratic countries and since 1996, Israel holds the record, the record of all democratic countries for most elections since 1996. And Israel was averaging 2.4, uh, its governments were, 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 were uh, lasting an average of 2.4 years, which is low. And with this new election coming up, it's that average is going to go down maybe to 2.0 years because this will be the fifth election in four years in the country. Uh, needless to say, that's not a terribly um, strong vote of confidence in the system or in the government or in democracy. But given the givens and given Israeli, the Israeli um, system of government, uh, it is what it is, as they say. Um, unlike in France and unlike in the US and unlike in Canada, Israel, as you know, has a proportional representation system with a minimum number of votes of three and a quarter percent in order to be elected. So any party getting over three and a quarter percent of the votes is guaranteed four seats in the Knesset because there's 120 seats in the Knesset. And, um, you know, if you divide if you divide uh, all the valid votes um, up, uh, uh, then um, you know uh, you get three and a quarter percent of the vote. It comes out to about four seats out of 120. So four is the minimum number, um, and uh, there has never been since 1940, the first election in 1949. There's never been a majority government uh, in the country because of this proportional system. There are no districts whatsoever. Uh, at the, there, there was once or twice a direct vote for the prime minister, but that was uh, canned after, um, you know, relatively unsuccessful uh, experiment. Um, and so, uh, you know, when you have 33 parties running for office and you have 13 odd parties elected, it's impossible to get a 50% majority and therefore uh, coalition politics being what they are, it leads to instability. And uh, sure enough, the government uh, was not able to last. 
The current government in Israel is uh, really quite remarkable. It's a first in many ways, but we'll talk about that uh, a bit later. Um, the government as it was, ex as it was uh, constituted had 61 members uh, supporting it out of 120. In other words, all it took was one, man one me member or two members to bring the, the, the government uh, below the 61 required. And uh, that's what happened. There were defections uh, of different coalition members at different times. And uh, it was impossible to keep on governing after one year uh, when this government was established. So it was established a year ago. It was a unique combination of political parties seven of them, seven, believe it or not, seven, uh, ranging from the left to the right, from religious to secular, uh, as well as Arab uh, member, Arab party for the first time in Israeli history. And they all got together with the one goal of keeping Netanyahu out of power. And they succeeded after 12 years of Netanyahu's government to um, form a government which would exclude him, much to his great shock, um, they had agreed on a rotation um, formula, which is not a first in Israel. In other words, uh, that there would be one man chosen to be prime minister for the first half and then a second man for the second half. So this has been done before. Uh, in the rotation, Mr. Bennett got the first uh, chance and Mr. Lapid was supposed to get the second chance. But the conflicts uh, which got stronger and stronger and the divisions in the government which got stronger and stronger and Mr. Netanyahu's efforts to, to uh, remove, bribe, uh, separate uh, members from the coalition government, uh, you know, they all succeeded in not being able to, uh, to, to make the government last. Um, in a certain sense, you could say as a whole, if you took the picture as a whole, the government uh, did not really represent uh, the Israeli public as it is um, because the Israeli government is mostly uh, right-wing and religious. I should say the Israeli people are mostly right-wing and religious. And this government was not mostly right-wing right and religious. And it was these differences which caused the government to uh, eventually collapse. Um, the uh, sort of straws that broke the camel's back, we'll say, were issues that had to do with um, the Palestinians. Uh, nor, you know, as, as is logical, uh, you know, Israel still controls um, uh, the uh, West Bank. Uh, uh, constituting uh, about two and a half million Arabs who don't have the right to vote uh, and who are kind of uh, in limbo, we'll call it political limbo. Um, and, um, you know, it's bound to lead to conflicts and conflicts are what are, you know, is part of the daily life of that. Most Israelis say, well, you know, it's not an ideal situation, but we can't think of anything better. So, um, you know, that was, that's what the situation is. But there have been uh, demonstrations on the Temple Mount, which have turned violent. Um, the killing of this uh, Arab Al Jazeera reporter, who was very popular, uh, was, was very disturbing to some people. 
the refusal of the government to allow a Palestinian spouses to have residency in Israel, the refusal of the government to provide electricity to Bedouin communities, the refusal of the government to include the Bedouin in the solar energy uh, program, it put the Arab members of the coalition in a tough spot. Um, then the, the, the last thing was the extension of Israeli law to settlers, which have been re uh, renewed kind of every single year uh, since 1967, uh, also um, uh, you know, put the Arab uh, voters in a tough spot uh, because they don't uh, approve of this law. They don't like the idea that, that, uh, that Israeli um, people who are not living in Israel proper, and you know that not even Israel has laid claim to the West Bank officially. Uh, therefore, the Israelis uh, who live there, uh, technically speaking, uh, should be under military rule uh, and not under civilian rule. And if you allow them to be, uh, you know, under civilian rule, then you're making a difference between them and their neighbors who are not under civilian rule, the Arab neighbors anyway. So uh, this law has been sort of temporarily extended uh, time after time, but um, the government could not get a majority to support the extension of this law. And if the law did not get extended, then all kinds of anarchy would break loose uh, among the settlers in the West Bank. So uh, these are some of the pressures that uh, put the government in jeopardy and danger. Uh, the uh, one of the essential contradictions of the government was that uh, Mr. Bennett and his party called Yamina, which means right wing, um, they uh, he's the prime minister, but all of the voters of the Yamina party and uh, many of the elected members of whom there were only seven uh, are kind of right wing religious nationalists. And uh, the last thing they want is to have um, uh, the Arab uh, community of 21% be regarded as uh, equal citizens, which is what the Arab party wanted. Uh, and uh, they were the ones who uh, deserted one by one, deserted his party to kind of go over to the Likud. And that went, made the you know, government total go from 61 to 59. And um, you know that's why the government uh, lost its uh, its majority. Uh, Netanyahu always accused the, the government of being traitorous uh, because the traitoring aspect was that the government, uh, the voters of the uh, Yamina party, did not expect the Yamina party to uh, go over and make a government without Netanyahu. Up until now, Netanyahu and Yamina were uh, you know, in the same coalition. Um, some of uh, Mr. Bennett himself and his number two, Shaked, uh, were top cabinet ministers in some of Netanyahu's governments. Um, Mr. Bennett, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, a, what's it called? A, a right-hand man or personal assistant to Netanyahu for a long time. So, uh, you know, this sort of government established by what's supposed to be a close ally was particularly um, upsetting to the Likud party. And so they were, they're in jubilant now that they brought down the government. But the government made first in history. It was the first time uh, 
that a religious keeper wearing Jew uh, was prime minister, which is Mr. Bennett. Uh, the first time that a small party leader became a prime minister, as I said, Bennett's party only had seven seats out of 120, and yet he became prime minister. The first time that there was such a range of parties in the coalition, as I said before, from left to right, from secular to religious, the first time an Arab party was a full participant in the government, and I believe that's probably the biggest um, achievement of this government, because uh, for 74 years, um, no Arab party uh, agreed to be actively participating in a government with ministerial status, and no government would actively um, uh, would actively uh, want an Arab party to be part of the government. Uh, except Mr. Netanyahu, of course, and the, you know when he got so desperate last time and couldn't get over the 60 uh, seat mark, it was Mr. Netanyahu who, who asked the Arab Party, uh, the United Arab List, led by uh, Mansour Abbas. He, he, Mr. Abbas said, "I'd be willing to serve in Netanyahu's government," and Netanyahu said, "Sure, fine, let's do it." Uh, but then it was vetoed by the other a potential member of his government, the ultra-right-wing party called Religious Zionism, who said, we can't serve in a government with them. And so that's what led to the election, and that's what led to, um, uh, <clears throat> that's what led to the formation of this uh, sort of coalition government. But it's the very first time that an Arab uh, party agreed to participate in the government itself. Uh, and its goal was to say, look, um, we're not that interested in Palestinian politics and the whole Palestinian issue, but what we want is for uh, Israeli Arab uh, citizens to receive the same treatment and benefits as the Jewish ones. And that was his uh, goal. Um, and he's made some very specific requests, some of which were accepted, some of which were not. Some of the accepted requests were acted upon, some of which were not. And, uh, but it means that it's a kind of a template or an example that um, Israeli Arab parties could participate in a government. Um, it remains to be seen, of course, how the Israeli Arab electorate will act, will react or act in the upcoming elections. Will they reward Mr. Abbas for joining the government or will they punish him for doing that? Uh, you know, that kind of remains to be seen. Um, it was the first time in a long time that the ultra-Orthodox factions didn't, be, didn't take part in the government, like over 30 years, um, because both ultra-Orthodox parties, the Sephardi one and the Ashkenazi one, uh, decided to stay with Netanyahu in the opposition. It was the first time that a specifically racist party was allowed to be elected in the Knesset. Um, Meyer Kahana, who started this racist party, uh, was elected once, and then the courts um, decided that racists could not be allowed to uh, run for office. And yet this time, uh, Mr. Netanyahu engineered a union between the uh, religious, uh, non-ultra-Orthodox non, non religious party with this racist party, a successor of Kahana's party, and he did it so that this, the, these two parties together would pass over the threshold, which they did. 
and uh, Mr. Smotrich and Ben Gvir, both of whom are well known to be uh, extremists, were elected in the Knesset, and that's a first. Uh, Mr. Ben Gvir is the one who um, uh, uh, said that all Arabs uh, should be kicked out of Israel, and um, uh, the uh, he, he he you know he constantly is trying to create. Um, civil unrest between Jews and Arabs in order to show that the Arabs are not loyal to the state. So he's the one who uh, you know, goes up on the Temple Mount and then tries to uh, antagonize the <clears throat> antagonize the Muslims who were praying there. And uh, that's his MO. Um, it's the first time that a non-Haredi had the religious affairs ministry because the because the ultra-Orthodox are not in the government, they couldn't run the religious affairs ministry, which they always did. And that led, <clears throat> so the one who is, who is doing it up till now is an Orthodox uh, kippah-wearing Jew from, from Mr. Bennett's party, um, but he's not a uh, ultra-Orthodox Jew. And he set, a par, he set out a bunch of reforms to religious life in the country, which include, um, who is nominating municipal rabbis, uh, which rabbis can sit on religious courts, uh, how kashrut supervision is going to be upheld, uh, how the conversion process is going to be done. And in all of his steps in these rules, all of his steps in these areas opened up the field to non-ultra-Orthodox uh, um, candidates. Uh, so previously, up until now, uh, it was the ultra-Orthodox who nominated their own people for all of these posts, and now uh, he's uh, opened it up to uh, non-Orthodox and even to, uh, yeah, I should say, even to non-Orthodox um, rabbis to sit on municipal courts, rabbinical courts, uh, you know, etc. So even allowing conservative and reform rabbis to take part in some little way in um, the religious affairs of the country. Um, he also allowed a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a opening up of the kosher supervision process. So it's not only in the hands of the chief rabbinate, but that local rabbinical, local Orthodox rabbis would be allowed to uh, supervise kashrut. And here's this, I'm sure you haven't heard of this one, uh, that, um, he allow, is allowing a kosher phones. Uh, you know what a kosher phone is. It's a phone, an, an iPhone that can't join the internet. So it's, uh, it's a phone which is limited in its capacity and can only download um, uh, approved uh, sources by the rabbinate. And that's called a kosher phone. Um, but he's allowed these phones to be connected to the internet, in other words, to change their status, but without changing the phone number. That's the key. So in other words, somebody can just have a phone number and unbeknownst to the rabbis and unbeknownst to their families even, they could just switch their phone to a regular type phone without changing the phone number. And you know, this of course means that the rabbis don't have control over, over uh, somebody's uh, internet practices. Uh, because uh, they would find out, you know, if anybody wanted to change their phone number and they, you know, they'd say, why, what's happening here? 
So that, that's a kind of a major change that was allowed as well. Um, the, uh, the, the, the fact that um, there was an Arab party in the government and Arab parties in the opposition means that um, Arab parties will compete against each other, uh, not to be in the opposition, but should they be in the government or not in the government. Um, uh, the Arab voter turnout has always been lower than the Jewish voting turnout, um, partly because of the frustration with the system, partly because some just don't recognize the state of Israel at all, even now. And uh, the previous election, not this one, the one or two previous, the Arab parties got 15 seats, which made them the, the third biggest party in the Knesset. And uh, they still didn't, you know, they weren't able to use their power to help their own selves. And so, um, you know, uh, in the next election, the turnout was much less and the Arab party scored many, many fewer seats than before. Um, so now what's gonna happen is that, um, uh, so, so just on that subject then, um, uh, the Arab voters say, well, you know, with all the seats we had, we haven't seen any improvements. And now with the United Arab List Party, the Ram Party in power, we don't see much improvements. We see a few changes, but not many. So what's the point of voting? So that's the way some of the uh, Arab electorate, especially the younger people are thinking. Um, and it remains to be seen, you know, they could translate their numbers into significant power if they decided to go out and vote in substantial numbers. Um, so Lapid is uh, now going to become the prime minister, which he really should have been before because he was the second biggest party in the Knesset after uh, Netanyahu, uh, but he generously uh, gave up the spot in order to allow Mr. Bennett to bring on his his religious supporters to form an anti-Netanyahu government. Uh, so now with the resignation of Bennett, uh, Lapid becomes the new prime minister and he's a prime minister until, not only until elections are called, but until a new government is formed. And sometimes there, you know, there's a difference between winning an election and forming a government. So he's gonna be the prime minister until uh, at least uh, the end of October. And being a prime minister gives you the usual sort of publicity and the usual prestige of uh, shaking hands with foreign leaders and looking, you know, uh, looking uh, prime ministerial on TV and being given a sort of a free um, uh, mic, uh, a free access to, um, to the media to present your ideas and your, your, your plans for the future. Um, he's a secular centrist. His father was the founder of a party called uh, Shinui, which is Change, which was also a secular centrist party. Uh, the center in Israel traditionally has never done well, um, but he has managed better than any other center parties to hang in there after several different elections. But they've never won more than 15% of the vote, which is not enough to, to really form a solid, uh, strong bloc. Uh, their polls were published uh, yesterday, uh, which show him going from uh, 17 seats to 20 seats, which is no big deal, and still not nearly enough to uh, 
you know, make a claim on being a leader of the country. Um, some people would say, well, why did the uh, current Israeli government vote to dissolve the, the government rather than wait for an opposition vote to dissolve the government? And that's just for politics. In other words, you know, I'm, I, uh, you know if, if a couple is breaking up, uh, the one who decides to break up first is the one who gets the kind of uh, reward. You know, you're not telling me, you're not kicking me out, I'm leaving. So that's what, um, that's what happened in this uh, case. And um, it is possible for Netanyahu to become prime minister without elections, but he has to get 61 members of the Knesset to support him. And uh, it's theoretically possible if some of Mr. Bennett's former uh, party uh, people uh, decide to uh, support Mr. Netanyahu, in exchange for some huge offers that Mr. Netanyahu is making. So he's running around to every coalition member who he thinks might go with him, promising rewards, jobs, posts, ministerial positions, cars, um, ambassadorships, you name it. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's got his whole crew out there trying to get enough people to support him so that he could become the prime minister uh, without elections. So far, so far, not many people have bit, but you know, um, it's tempting, let's put it like that. Um, <clears throat> so just to, uh, to, just to review again, and I'll finish up here though, that the current government is made up of seven different political parties and Yamina was one of them, which is the right-wing party. And then you had sort of two right-center right type parties based on personalities more than on policies. Uh, one led by Gideon Saar, who was the former number two person in the Likud, who said, I'm not waiting to, um, I'm not waiting for Netanyahu to quit before I can become a leader. And he decided to form his own party. And the uh, attacks on, Mr., uh, the attacks Mr. Netanyahu gave him were so strong that he decided to be part of the opposition coalition. Uh, Mr. Gantz, who is the leader of the Blue and White Party, formerly uh, a union between himself and Lapid. And you might remember a couple of governments ago, um, Netanyahu promised Gantz the, or the, the moon and the stars if Mr. Gantz would join him. He promised Mr. Gantz would be in a rotation agreement with Netanyahu, with Netanyahu becoming prime minister first and then Mr. Gantz. Uh, when Mr. Netanyahu's turn came to give up the power to Gantz, Netanyahu engineered uh, the government falling so that uh, he wouldn't have to give up power to Gantz. So Gantz was so betrayed that he also joined this opposition, um, a coalition against Netanyahu. So that's him. So those are three parties there. And then you other have the left, the other ones, Mr. Lieberman's party, Israel Beitenu, which is a strongly right-wing but secular party. Uh, he was also betrayed by Netanyahu. Um, <clears throat> and then you've got the Labour Party, traditional Labour Party, the left-wing Merits Party, and the United Arab List. So that, that, those are the parties that made up the coalition. They did succeed in passing two budgets, which Netanyahu never did, because, uh, as I said, he didn't want to... Um, 
have his government long be in power long enough to rotate, uh, you know, power with Mr. Gantz. Um, it was a miracle to get the coalition to work for a year and to get Mr. Netanyahu out. And the world, uh, by and large, the world's democracies welcomed, um, you know, the alternative to Netanyahu. You know, only Trump was Netanyahu's friend, really. Uh, Trump and Putin and Viktor Orban, they, they were all his fans. Um, but the rest of the democratic world, not so much. Um, and uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, the fact is, in a certain way that Netanyahu has all the cards and it's his election to lose. But uh, Mr. Lapid is a very strong uh, politician and uh, you know, he's gonna try his hardest to, to uh, assemble a similar type coalition to keep Netanyahu out of power. Um, uh, the, uh, the, um, this religious Zionist party that I mentioned before is sort of uh, the one that Netanyahu encouraged to get into the Knesset has now, is now polling so strongly uh, that uh, they're polling now uh, 10 seats, which is really a, a, a large uh, improvement over the five that they uh, ended up with. And their growth um, is because um, Mr. the leader of the party is so racist and so outspoken that he's able to gather to himself these sort of elements of the far right ultra-nationalist uh, part of the Israeli electorate. And most interestingly, the ultra-orthodox Haredim, in other words, the black coat guys, um, many of the younger ones uh, are, are deserting their traditional parties and supporting um, this, uh, this uh, religious Zionism party over the objections of their own rabbis. So that's a very interesting uh, development. Uh, remains to be seen how that will work out. Um, and uh, uh, the 3.25% um, the, uh, the uh, floor or minimum that's required to get into the Knesset is one which could threaten uh, several of the coalition parties now. And if any of these coalition parties don't make it, of course, all their votes are lost. And this would be to Mr. Netanyahu's gain. Whereas <clears throat> the four party coalition that Mr. Netanyahu has, which is his party, the Likud, this racist party, uh, and the two ultra-Orthodox parties, Sephardi and Ashkenazi, they're way over the 3.25%. Um, so uh, really all the cards are in Mr. Netanyahu's hands to win the next election. And, um, you know, the only thing that might uh, sort of, uh, let's say, derail that would be if finally Mr. Net Netanyahu is found guilty in court of the three different charges that he's been charged with, but the courts are afraid to touch, you, you, you know, to, to um, the courts are a bit of afraid to to stick him in the courtroom because he, you know, he starts yelling and screaming, this is all a political witch hunt. So, um, you know, uh, that's basically the story there. And um, it's uh, after three o'clock, so thanks again. And um, now I'm gonna ask Angela for anyone who has questions, comments on France, on Colombia, on Israel, um, or anything else. Um, you notice I haven't spoken about the American uh, 
hearings on the January 6th riot, and uh, maybe that could be a subject for next week. So, um, yeah, let's uh, hear what you have to say. There's nobody yet, Mr. Dwaskin. You know, I think that we lost our good friend Steve, who is such a great, uh, such a great, um, you know, listener and questioner, and um, you know, uh, one who always like to make sure his opinion is uh, is presented. But uh, you know, you know, think of it. Let me know. I'm here for, you know, if we were in person, which I would love to be. Um, you know, people uh, look at people and I could ask people what they think and it's kind of a more um, intimate uh, setting. And so people always have comments and questions. It's very hard to talk to a machine, a computer, a phone, or an iPad and, and, and pretend that you're speaking to somebody because all you're doing is looking at an iPad. Well, well, uh, if that's the case, uh, Angela, tell me um, any, any, if there's nothing else, I want to thank everybody for listening. I thank everybody for being uh, tuning in. Um, I hope that you learned something that you didn't know before. That's the whole idea of this. And um, I'll see you all next week. Uh, so thanks again, Angela. And thank you everybody for listening and um, we'll see you again. Thank you, Mr. Dwaskin, and thank you to everyone listening over the telephone and on Zoom. We shall see you again next Tuesday. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. Bye.